seeing the way things have developed in the last couple of years, um, the, the key really is a stable and prosperous Afghanistan. Um, and this was uh, the vision of President Ashraf Ghani when he took over. And that is shared, I think, by Dr. Abdullah. Um, and it's, it's to create an economic and a trade hub in the region, uh, which will benefit not just Afghanistan, but its neighbors. And I think that's the way to present it. Um, because if there is trade and um, prosperity in Afghanistan, connecting Afghanistan with Central Asia and then Pakistan can profit, Iran can profit, and certainly if India and Pakistan can see eye to eye on this, then the, the trade with Central Asia, whether it's for energy or for other commerce, uh, is going to benefit all the countries in the region. One very specific suggestion that I would make would be to work with the Chinese and the Pakistani authorities to help put the emphasis on the new China-Pakistan economic corridor uh, so that the most western route, there are three routes that the Pakistanis are examining. They hope to get all three of them operational at some point in the future, but my suggestion would be to try and accelerate the western route opening so that it would go through Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Balochistan to Gwadar. And then you could link up Afghanistan with that corridor uh, so that there would be an avenue for Afghanistan to the sea which would be protected. Um, the Pakistan army, as you know, is raising 10,000 additional troops simply to safeguard that corridor. And th that was a Chinese um, demand or maybe an underlying demand of security that the Pakistanis have decided to meet. So there's great emphasis on that. And I think that should certainly be used as a springboard for opening up the trade links with Afghanistan and through Afghanistan with, with Central Asia. Uh, there is still a lot of suspicion on the Pakistani side, particularly now that there is reverse sanctuary for the Pakistani Taliban in Afghanistan. And that's largely because the Afghan forces are overstretched and dealing with uh, troubles in the north and in the south. And so um, a very senior Pakistani official said to me, but didn't present any evidence um, in support of the statement, that he believed uh, Mullah Fazlullah, the uh, head of the TTP who took over from Baitullah Masood, had apparently been treated in a hospital in Kabul. This is the kind of story that resembles stories one heard years ago about Osama bin Laden being treated in Dubai. Um, so uh, one, it's hard to, to know where the truth lies, but so long as these suspicions exist, I think um, they will stand in the way of, of this greater collaboration. The other uh, very specific suggestion that emerged from uh, a senior military official in the border region was to try and work with Afghanistan at a tactical level in doing joint operations in the border region uh, so that that would eliminate the, uh, the suspicions that exist, particularly on the Afghan side, that the Pakistanis are allowing groups like the Haqqani to, to creep in and out of Pakistan. Uh, and, and it would certainly help lock up many of the other passes that have not yet been locked up. Um, that where the Pakistanis have established posts. Um, I think uh, I would just end with, with a, uh, a very powerful um, call to support President Ghani's very bold gamble on working with Pakistan. 
um, to see if Pakistan can accelerate its timetable um, for dealing with all the groups that have used Pakistani territory um, in the past or are currently using them uh, as a base for operations against Afghanistan. Once very clear evidence of that emerges, I think it'll be much easier for Afghanistan and Pakistan to work together. And it'll be easier for countries like Iran and China also to, to work with them. Uh, final word, I think, on the economic side um, and on the military supply side, uh, countries in the region need to work and be supported by the West, particularly because of its advanced knowledge of financial transfers, et cetera, to shut off the narco finance that is uh, help, helping fund the insurgency in Afghanistan and in, in that whole region, uh, and to shut off the supply of weapons that is go still going through. If that can be done effectively, then I think we will be uh, helping set the stage for much more effective Afghan National Security Forces operations uh, within Afghanistan. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, um, Vali, would you say a couple words about your assessment of the current situation and what, what the main issues and challenges are of the, the upcoming visit of the Prime Minister? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, uh, putting together this panel, and, uh, and uh, it's good to participate in uh, this at Atlantic Council that has proven to be ahead of the curve, uh, uh, both in Jim's prescience of addressing these issues and also in the paper that uh, I think, as uh, Shuja said very appropriately, uh, has not only highlighted the <coughs> ongoing problem in Afghanistan, but also has given very sage counsel uh, for continued engagement there. Um, my uh, sort of uh, read of uh, the uh, domestic situation uh, in Pakistan, I think it has a bearing on what we should expect from the prime minister's visit, is that the, um, uh, the his administration, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's administration, has fallen into the same pattern as, as uh, President Zardar's, which means that there is a very stable civilian facade that actually really uh, does not make any critical decisions, uh, particularly on security issues that is very obviously delegated to the military. So we, sh we have to tamper what we can expect from the president. Now, when you look at the India policy, when you look at Afghanistan policy, when you look at... Uh, uh, general security policy that the real decision makers are, are in the military is General Rahil Sharif uh, and, and in the same way that we look to General Kayani at one time to deliver. I think that's the reality. That's the new normal in Pakistan. No coups, um, you know, civilian governments that will, will end their terms uh, but uh, basically make no waves uh, in, in, in doing so. Uh, and this is very different, Prime Minister Sharif, than the one we saw in the 90s that was bold on economic change, that uh, was willing to push uh, the envelope on w with the military and, and, and ultimately to his own detriment in, in 1999. Uh, this is a sort of a play-safe uh, uh, civilian government. Uh, and, and, and I think uh, the, the real conversations on a host of issues is going to happen with the military uh, about uh, <coughs> Afghanistan. Secondly, uh, you know, whatever was the original reason for Prime Minister Sharif coming uh, to uh, Washington, there's now, a there's now a new set of, uh, there's a new context for it, and that is that the Afghanistan policy, policy of the United States is imploding. I think 
you know, uh, the, the paper sort of understood that it would be even in greater danger if we continued on our military withdrawal. And this is a general, in some, in some ways, it's even more of a general collapse. It's, it's, uh, Afghanistan was headed for a repetition of Iraq. You know, it's the entire strategy of, of quickly withdrawing U.S. military presence, relying on standing up uh, um, uh, local militaries uh, 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 with fragile political systems on top uh, that could somehow stand up to much more uh, well-heeled uh, insurgencies you know, in Iraq was proven to be false, and in Afghanistan is very clearly heading in that uh, direction. Some of this will be blamed on Pakistan uh, for, for reasons that, that we know, safe havens, traditional relations with Taliban. Um, but some of it is also has to do with, the, with the, I think, is a fundamental wrong assumptions of the American uh, strategy of, of e exiting uh, Afghanistan. There are some uh, 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 critical pieces to this. One is that uh, um, the United States has put a lot of emphasis on, on uh, President Ghani's uh, um, uh, success. Uh, we've seen in him as the, right, as the right kind of leader, uh, as opposed to President Karzai, which we saw as the wrong kind of leader, uh, that who was able to actually deliver, who, who's, who's serious about economic change, and, and who's serious about uh, security issues. Um, you know, the problem right now is that President Ghani doubled down on Pakistan, on relation to Pakistan, that he, he uh, vested a lot on, on uh, a very clear uh, initial uh, hugging of Pakistan, if you would, and, and trusting that Pakistan would deliver. The, the spate of bombings uh, uh, in Afghanistan, the, the, the Kunduz uh, 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 fiasco, it, 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 uh, at the some level, has put his political judgment on the line, and, and I would expect that he would recoil uh, from any, uh, any further engagement of uh, Pakistan without Pakistan is giving him something serious and something big. So it's not a question of whether we should support him. It's actually really encouraging the Pakistanis to basically shore up uh, the decision that President Ghani made in the, uh, in the first instance. And secondly, of course, uh, you know, Kunduz showed that Afghan security forces still have significant distance to go in order to be able to provide uh, viable security. And, and, and that is something the United States has to address more so than, than uh, uh, Pakistan. Um, but I think uh, it would be a mistake to uh, basically make Afghanistan about Pakistan at this stage. It's really about American strategy. Pakistan is Pakistan. And it has its interest, and we should just assume that uh, you know, it has made changes, but there's some things it cannot do, and there are some things that it will not do at this stage for varieties of reasons. The question is, you know, what is American strategy facing this reality. Uh, the second issue is there is a rise of ISIS. There's a new player in there. Uh, yesterday, also, New York Times had an article about uh, you know, a vicious control of uh, um, uh, a valley in Afghanistan and, and, and the degree of brutality that, that uh, ISIS is bringing into the fold. Now, Afghanistan was complicated enough. Uh, there, there's, a, there's another sort of a dynamic here. There's a dynamic between the central government and US forces and ISIS that is going to escalate. And there's going to be a dynamic between ISIS and the Taliban that is going to then impact Taliban's attitude towards reconciliation and, and, and stability. Again, this is like Iraq. We should have seen this coming. Uh, you know, in fact, the Iranians for the past two years have been talking about ISIS setting up shop in Afghanistan and the need for the United States to talk to Iran about 
uh, about uh, ISIS. And um, there's, we should have every expectation that ISIS can, can expand, will expand. Uh, it, sets the, it, it fits ISIS's general um, regional strategy. And uh, as uh, the confrontation between Iran and the Arab states uh, uh, in the Persian, in Persian Gulf and the Levant is intensifying, we should have every expectation that it will resurface in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is the place where it first surfaced uh, in, in, the, in the 1980s. And, and it, it, you know, ISIS will likely play an important uh, role. Now, uh, this all sort of obviously puts Iran on the table in a big way. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's an open question as to whether uh, uh, ISIS and general security situation in Afghanistan will open a new frontier for U.S.-Iranian collaboration. As I said, the Iranians have been talking about this for the past two years, uh, much more so than about talking over Syria or talking about the Yemen. Uh, they were always talking about that we're not seeing what's happening in Afghanistan. We should take it seriously, and, and, and there should be an Iranian-American dialogue about Afghanistan. I think the rise of ISIS, what happened in Kunduz, the, the decision of the United States to, to stay, these all, will, all probably will create uh, a new uh, uh, avenue of, of talking. It's also interesting uh, in terms of um, that the nuclear deal uh, and, the, and what happened in Yemen has also perhaps created a subtle shift in Pakistan's position vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Uh, Pakistan decided not to uh, uh, accept Saudi invitation to, uh, to, to come to Yemen uh, at some cost, uh, at least the diplomatic cost. Uh, I think the UAE even threatened to expel all the Pakistanis uh, from UAE. Uh, but all, there's, there's more there. In other words, uh, part of the Chinese investment in Pakistan includes building a, uh, the gas pipeline between Iran and Pakistan, which the Chinese uh, intention is that it would then, through that corridor that they're investing in, would go all the way into um, uh, Western, uh, Western China. And uh, I think uh, Iran and the, and the Pakistanis didn't talk about the Taliban, uh, but they may talk about ISIS. That's a common enemy between two of them. It's a threat to Pakistan's main uh, client in Afghanistan, traditional client in Afghanistan. It's a threat to Iran as well, a bigger threat than the Taliban poses uh, to, to Iran. And that might very well uh, change, if you would, the, the, the current lay of the land, uh, the way uh, we look at it. Um, Saudi Arabia is... Um, has always been a sort of a silent player uh, here. Uh, uh, it may very well play a much more prominent role, as I said, because the confrontation with Iran is a region-wide competition, basically in every arena that they can compete. And in the past, it has been a source of sectarian tensions in uh, 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 um, Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, one of the dangers to Afghanistan is that the, the intense rivalry in the Middle East will show up in that region. I think the decision by uh, Pakistan security forces to flush out the Lashkar-e-Jangvi, uh, which is the most sectarian of, uh, of the Sunni extremist groups in Pakistan, was sort of a preemptive uh, maneuver to try to forestall such a, uh, uh, such a scenario, but, but I think it may very well uh, take place. Uh, India and China uh, and what has been happening is, is also important uh, in a much broader sense. The Pakistanis have a very clear sense that the United States has 
significantly and definitively shifted to India. Uh, there's no two ways about it. Uh, the, the, the visit of Prime Minister Modi, uh, Prime, uh, President Obama's visit to, to India, the level of ec uh, economic uh, engagement, and even the way in which India is featuring in uh, American plans for containment of China are very much suggest that you know, there is a positive, growing strategic alignment across the board between uh, China and, uh, sorry, between India and the United States. This, this is also going on at a time where I think uh, the foreign policies, the India-Pakistan India policies in both Islamabad and New Delhi is in the hands of the hardliners on both sides. It's much more sort of the RSS hardline BJP that controls Pakistan policy in Delhi, and it's the military that controls India policy uh, in Islamabad. So despite you know, uh, Prime Minister Sharif's belief in cross-border trade, and middle-class engagement, business-to-business -business engagement, you know, that's not what's driving Pakistan's approach to, uh, uh, to India. And nor on the other side, uh, Prime Minister Modi sort of tried to build on that initial uh, um, bonhomie with, uh, with uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Sharif. Uh, so I think that that tension is going, to, uh, is going to be there and it's going to, as uh, Shuja said very probably, is going to visit in Afghanistan as well. Uh, I think for now, uh, the assumption in Delhi was that uh, President uh, Ghani made a decision that unlike his predecessor is going to, at least for now, tilt towards Pakistan in the hope that that would change Pakistani's strategy towards Afghanistan. If the conclusion in Kabul is that this was a mistake, then you, know, you could see that uh, perhaps Afghanistan will begin to follow much more the path that President Karzai followed, which is a closer alignment with Delhi, and then, that, then we're back to the you know, uh, back to a decade ago. Uh, and, the, and then the, the rivalry between Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, India in Afghanistan will intensify. I think the, the, the Chinese investment in, in um, Pakistan is significant. Uh, it is about $49 billion. It's, uh, it, it's, it's transformative. It's even transformative to Pakistan military. I mean, the Pakistan military has made a commitment of three additional brigades just to uh, uh, protect the, the, the routes. It will impact on, have a big impact on Balochistan, uh, on security there. It will have a big impact on, on, on uh, uh, unstable Pashtun areas because of the, the fact that the corridor goes through that region. Uh, it is a major commitment by China. It is much more than uh, you know, uh, whether the Chinese will diplomatically try to notch Pakistan one way or the other. I mean, at some level, it's almost like colonization of Pakistan. So you have to see what is the larger Chinese uh, uh, interest here, which of, of course includes the United States and, and, and includes India and, and includes uh, uh, Iran. I mean, the, the key issue is uh, how will the Chinese try to use the influence that they're gaining in Pakistan uh, uh, in terms of changing its uh, 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 regional policy? And also the psychological impact of this investment on Pakistan should not be underestimated. I mean, this, is a, this, this kind of a strategic investment in the country, not only in terms of the dollar number, but also in terms of what it means uh, you know, will will have an impact in the way that the, that that the Pakistanis will handle India, will handle uh, the United States, and the degree to which we actually can push them around. I mean, we clearly what we give in aid to Pakistan now is completely dwarfed by the Chinese investment. Uh, 
And, and this kind of a Chinese participation and investment in Pakistan, it's, uh, it gives them a, a, a much stronger uh, you know, sense, source of confidence and backing in, in, in confronting outside pressure. Uh, and, and we have to see that how, how that uh, uh, unfolds. So, um, so the, I, I think there's a very different regional context, even though the argument today we're looking at is, is very much the argument when I was in government, when you were in Kabul, we were having about safe havens, Pakistani mischief, you know, support for the Taliban. We may be back to the same arguments, but it's not in the same context. Good, thank you for that. It's a very useful reminder that contexts do change and that um, policies need to change as well to adapt to those new contexts and thankfully that's what the president decided yesterday. Um, so let me pick up a couple of the threads uh, that both of you um, I think uh, introduced into the discussion and the, the first one is throughout much of what you both said is the importance of, re of other regional actors um, on the dynamic between Afghanistan and Pakistan and their, and their internal dynamics, whether it's China, Iran, the United States, um, other, other regional players and how important that is. And that's a theme that was in the, in the paper that we um, released on, on Wednesday as well. If you, if you, if you want to achieve long-term stability and ultimately peace in the region, the regional partners have to be genuine partners and, and have to have made the the contextual shift uh, to put that as a primary interest instead of a hedging behavior, which ho hopefully the president's decision of yesterday will be an incentive to and reduce the tendency towards hedging behavior. So obviously Pakistan will have a crucial role in, in whatever happens in, in the region and what happens in Afghanistan. So how, what kinds of things, dynamics, mechanisms, discussions do each of you think um, we could help stimulate, the United States could help stimulate to move Pakistan into a position where it is more of a, uh, a genuine partner and a visibly um, genuine partner. As both of you noted, there's a huge amount of suspicion to overcome. I kept writing down in my notes here, how do we overcome the past? How do we, not just, not just with Afghanistan, but in the whole area. How does one take, uh, how does one get countries to focus on a, on a higher interest in today's context than some of the things that have divided them or caught, brought them into conflict in the, in the past. Is there a way to do that? Shuja? Um, I would pick up on uh, something that Wally said um, about a mistake the U.S. made when it initially went into Afghanistan. I think it formed the wrong coalition. And Maybe now's the time to correct that, uh, to form a more regionally-based coalition, now that the dialogue is open with Iran, now that we are working with China on many issues. Um, and to, to get the regional players to work together, which means including India in the dialogue. Pakistan has been very resistant to that on, on all the discussions on Afghanistan. But if I recall correctly, I think in one of the, the meetings, um, India was allowed to participate. Um, so maybe that's the way to, to, to redo it. Uh, I'm reminded of, you know, from your comments uh, and from Bali's comments, I'm reminded of the famous Politburo meeting of 1986 November when Gorbachev got 
the Politburo to agree to a departure date two years hence. Um, one thing I remember him saying in that, he said, if we're going to resolve the issue of Afghanistan, we have to go to Pakistan, we have to go to China, we have to go to Delhi, we have to go to Tehran. And I think that's what we need to do in the US today, is to bring all these actors together and, and have an active coalition that can then come up with the bits and pieces that are needed to rebuild that confidence in each other and to eliminate the possibility of bilateral uh, wars being fought over and over again, which has been the pattern till now. It's not an India-Pakistan issue in Afghanistan. It's really an Afghanistan issue, and it's for the region as a whole. And I think if we can shift that focus, and maybe we can then get to the much more specifics. And I mentioned one, which is linking up a tributary to the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Uh, there's already, um, I know the US government is, is funding a project that uh, has been awarded to a Pakistani think tank to look at uh, the, the exploitation of the Kabul River uh, area, the whole region, uh, which spans both Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. Uh, so joint um, investment in energy uh, in resource development in that region, which is also the region where um, there is Pakistani suspicion where the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, have been finding refuge on the other side. So if there's economic development and penetration of that region, then maybe that will allow um, the Pakistanis to dispel the notion that there are safe havens for their Taliban on the Afghan side. Uh, and then for the Afghans to expect the same thing on the Pakistani side. One thing is for sure, um, the basic um, bases and logistical storehouses that were evident in North Waziristan have been destroyed. Um, Miran Shah is like Dresden after the Second World War or, or Berlin after the Second World War after Air Marshal Tedder did his business there. Um, so the whole place has been leveled which means that the amount of facilities available to the Afghan Taliban groups like the Haqqani group and others that have used Pakistani territory are no longer available in the same uh, quantum or of the same quality as they were. Question now is, can we persuade the Pakistani authorities to accelerate their timetable for depriving them of the ability to actually escape back into Pakistani territory? Uh, or to even store weapons in sites there, um, which may or may not be known to the Pakistani authorities. Um, let me, I want to comment on what you said before we turn to Vali. You're, you're certainly right about the desirability of trying to form a multilateral framework. Uh, and we tried to do that, with the exception of Iran for other reasons. Uh, and Vali, we did try to engage the Iranians in a discussion on, on Afghanistan um, without, without success. Uh, but you're right, that's an important thing to do as, as if we can build on, the, build on the nuclear agreement to do that somehow. Um, the, the problem with, the, the reason the attempt to create a multilateral engagement didn't work is because of the frictions between the parties and the multilateral engagement. 
we were not able, able to overcome the, the past in that context. Uh, so even, even though there, was, there were a couple of occasions when we got the relevant parties in the room, it wasn't a particularly productive engagement because they were reluctant, mistrustful, they weren't politically committed to it. So the, um, the, the question I originally posed is, uh, I think, still, it, it's a higher level kind of issue. It's not enough to just get them in the room, it's enough to get them in, in the room in a sense where they actually realize that there's a common purpose to be achieved. And, and we haven't succeeded in doing that, although we tried. And I think we should try again. Uh, we should keep trying, rather. But uh, Vali? Um, I, I think you're absolutely correct uh, in the sense that um, uh, our engagement uh, basically did not rise to the level that it, that it required uh, uh, for it to be effective. I mean, there, there are a couple of things that are important here. One is that uh, staying power counts. I mean, if you, if you are already saying that you're going to be leaving, uh, you know, in, within a year, then, uh, uh, and then, uh, well, okay, these troop numbers are only for till 2017, uh, it, that makes it very difficult to get people to change their strategic vision. Uh, you can only uh, make them, force them to do that if they figure that, you, you know, there's a permanent new player here and, and ultimately uh, you can't wait it out and, and, and you have to uh, address that much more uh, fundamentally. I think that's a, that's a big handicap of, of trying to solve really big, uh, complicated uh, issues when um, you're only passing by. And, and then you put certain minimal requirements uh, in order to extricate uh, yourself from it. I agree with uh, uh, Shuja that you know, having positive uh, incentives is important, which thus far has not played a big role. I mean, there hasn't been a big pipeline, you know, electricity corridor, trade routes, you know, the kinds of things that you might say would, would uh, uh, you know, pr provide significant incentive. There's, there's dollar amounts attached to it that might get countries to shift their policy to take advantage of that. Um, but I, I think you know, one of the problems we uh, face, and that uh, goes to your point, is uh, I, just, I think with Pakistan, the counterterrorism conversation just doesn't cut it because it doesn't address uh, their fundamental uh, interest in a country that, that's, on, that, that's next door. It's, it's, a, it's a very high priority for us. And uh, as a result, because we don't, it doesn't address their fundamental interests, uh, we end up getting only short-run wins with Pakistan. So whether it was Musharraf or, or Kayani, you can come to an agreement around an operation around the phase, but Pakistan's fundamental fears and aspirations in Afghanistan haven't actually been changed. So you can have a tactical impact, but not a, a strategic impact. And that might be a bridge too far. I think there are two issues. Um, you know, the, the key is, you know, what is, it, what is it that Pakistan really wants in Afghanistan? What are its objectives? And um, you know, there might be multitude. Uh, they're definitely not economic. Uh, there is no economic benefit uh, uh, that, that they look at. So it really comes down to, uh, I think, uh, historic uh, uh, fears of, uh, of a Pashtunistan notion that, that uh, a, a strong government in Kabul ultimately may be a handful uh, for them to manage, uh, they sort of have a Dawood Khan phobia, if you would, uh, for those who remember that 
period of irredentist Afghan policy towards Pakistan. And I think the other one is India. And, uh, uh, um, and, and you know, nothing in our strategy addresses either of two, these two issues. So uh, you know, I remember when General Kayani was pushed and pushed on the first one, he said, you know, the basic thing is uh, that Afghanistan will recognize the Durand line. There's actually not even a recognized border. There's a de facto border. But uh, uh, in a sense uh, uh, that, uh, that there's a sort of a permanent perceived uh, uh, threat. Uh, and the second is that um, both India and Pakistan, the India and Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan view Afghanistan as a territory uh, where uh, they could use against one another, uh, either in, in whatever, either politically or, or militarily. And I think the game between them is to prevent the other one from dominating Afghanistan. And that's a destructive competition. Uh, now, we can't solve India and Pakistan's larger problems as a prelude to solving Afghanistan. But there, I think there is a way to essentially take Afghanistan off the table from that competition. And that, that has to be towards some kind of a guaranteed neutrality of Afghanistan in the India-Pakistan uh, competition. Uh, this is not something, this is something, it's again difficult to, to manage. It's more than counterterrorism. It really means uh, uh, there has to be uh, a much more direct negotiations between Pakistan and India, uh, not over everything else, but over, uh, you know, what their expectations and, and rules of conduct are, are, are in Afghanistan. I think without that, um, Pakistanis will continue to compete with India for control of Afghanistan and will continue to, I think, uh, look at any kind of a strong government in Kabul, especially if it has 200,000 American-trained uh, you know, military at its disposal with a certain degree of suspicion and, 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 and fear. And so you're not going to change their strategy without actually changing, without actually addressing what it is that, that they're concerned with. I mean, you know, you thought about it, Pakistan has invested an enormous amount of, of, of strategic capital, money, resources into a country that doesn't have oil, doesn't have gas, do, you know, doesn't, there's no reason why you want to control that territory. Uh, well, yeah, well, that's recent. Okay, I'll give you that. Uh, yes, well, now they might actually have, more, have, a, have a much more conventional reason why they want to be there. But, but until now, uh, you know, you have to think, you know, what is, the, what is the fundamental reason why Pakistan is so concerned with Afghanistan? Okay, well, I think that's thought-provoking. Uh, this discussion, I hope so. Let's open the. Let's open it up to questions. Yes, sir. Uh, somebody will come and bring a microphone. If you would stand, please, and uh, give us your name and your affiliation of some sort, so we know what part of the universe you're in. My wife asks me that all the time. <laughs> I'm Bob Pathway at the Wilson Center. Um, if I may direct uh, our conversation away from Afghanistan and toward the <coughs> Sharif uh, meeting with Obama next week, uh, I'd be curious, do any of the three of you have any information about and or views on uh, the reports that we've been seeing in the press the last couple of weeks about a possible nuclear deal of some sort between the United States and Pakistan? Gentlemen. Um, I don't have any inside information except that uh, 
clearly this was something that uh, the Pakistanis had been pressing for some time, but it was on the U.S. back burner, and they had been told that you know India is different from Pakistan. That was the answer that was given. Uh, so now clearly the U.S. has shifted its position, and on this matter at least, uh, if it is correct that uh, they are rethinking their position, then India is uh, not very different from Pakistan. Um, there, there's probably a need to, uh, for Pakistan also to think in terms of its own position on uh, not just uh, nuclear controls, but also many of the other issues, the FMCT and other issues that have been bedeviling this uh, dialogue for, for so long. Um, but I would go back to what something Bali was saying, and that is that within Pakistan, um, there is a deep discussion between the civil and the military, um, and they're on the same page on some issues, but not all. And so I would wait perhaps till November when the army chief visits Washington to see what emerges from, from that visit, because this will be, uh, uh, the Sharif visit will be the opening uh, act to a, a two-act drama, uh, which when the prime minister goes back and then briefs the army chief and, and his cohorts, and then they meet again as a group and decide what to do about the U.S. offer, um, that uh, final decision would then, then emerge. Um, the, the truth is that uh, neither India nor Pakistan lose anything by signing on to many of the international treaties. Uh, and so they've really been waiting for the other to step forward first in order to sign on to the NPT, among others. Um, and uh, this may be an opportunity for them to, to actually be on the same page. Um, in terms of nuclear safeguards uh, and nuclear safety both, um, all the evidence to date indicates that Pakistan is spending an inordinate amount of uh, effort at making sure that its weapon systems are secure, um, and also that its plants are secure, because nuclear safety is, is equally critical. Um, personally, I don't think that either India or Pakistan has 100% security, uh, and I don't think that there is any regional plan to deal with nuclear accidents, for instance, which I would be worried about much more than actually a nuclear exchange at this stage. I would just um, uh, add to, I agree with everything Shuja said, uh, but I would just add that um, it obviously uh, uh, shifts the focus of U.S.-Pakistan discussions onto something else than the one that it has been for the past decade, which is terrorism, uh, Al-Qaeda, you know, Taliban, Afghanistan, to, to, to a completely different issue. This is, and, and if there is indeed going to be negotiations, it's going to be very involved. It's going to um, put the relationship on a very different uh, dynamic. But one other, uh, you know, if you look at the article's details, one of the things that it implies is that Pakistan is actually, uh, 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 its pace of technological gain on nuclear weapons is accelerating. And, and uh, the, the U.S. must be viewing that as a, as a, as a singular issue in its, on its own, that this is the time to intervene, to try to 
slow down the pace at which Pakistan is advances its nuclear weaponry. And I think to that extent, this is in India's interest. Because uh, um, ultimately, uh, there's the sort of an issue, the, you, you'll end up in an issue of a technological gap between India and, and, and Pakistan in Pakistan's favor if the current trends continue. And then that will have very different implications for, for, for India. So some kind of a nuclear order, I would say, uh, at, at this stage, uh, ensuring safety, but also incentivizing Pakistan to sort of cage its program to, to some extent will actually bring much more stability to the region. Barbara? Microphone. Thanks, Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. Great to see both of you all. Um, I, I'd like to get your analysis of why the Taliban is doing so well. Uh, estimates now that they either control or have strong influence in half the country, uh, which is the most extensive footprint since 2001. You know, is there is there a simple reason for this? And and I, I just feel like you know we're we're putting our finger in the dike. Yeah, we'll keep. 10,000 troops there, but how is that ever really going to solve the problem if uh, the government is perceived as uh, corrupt, if the economy can't get off the ground and it can't get off the ground because the security situation is so poor? That's one of the reasons. Um, what do you tell the American people? Is it going to be 10,000 troops forever? Shall I take a Yes. <laughs> You're referring to the UN report about the on terms no, of the influence of the Taliban. Yeah, so I would just begin by saying that assessment isn't universally accepted. Um, so that's a judgment call that that people can make. But um, the, the fact is, the it would this it was to be expected that this was going to be a particularly difficult year for security uh, in Afghanistan and that the Taliban would, would try very hard to effect strategic change in the country after the, after the end of the ISAF mission at the end of last year. So the fact that the security forces are struggling uh, is, um, is to be expected, I think. Uh, and in the overall result has been that they've held and that they have they've had difficulties, they've suffered setbacks, but they've been able to reorganize and, um, and re retrieve ground and territory that they've lost. Now, that's not an entirely satisfactory situation, but it is, they're not, it isn't Iraq. They're not crumbling. They're not abandoning the field. They're not refusing to fight. And unfortunately, they're, they're dying, and dying and being wounded in significant numbers. So one would hope that with the uh, confirmation that the American forces are going to remain at current levels for another year and remain at some level. I actually don't understand what 5,500 means, why they picked that number. Um, I suspect that the ultimate number may be higher than that when, when this situation is re-examined next year. And I hope it would be higher than that if it's necessary. I think what, I think was what Valley said, my, one of the problems that I had as ambassador to Afghanistan was the inability to explain what the situation looked like two years from now, or three years, or four years from now. It uh, provides a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty for our partners, our, 
our NATO, our coalition partners, as well as our Afghan partners. That, that uncertainty was exacerbated over the last couple of years when Karzai refused to sign the security agreement and then the crisis over the elections. So collectively, we have, as a coalition, we have to recover from that, and so do the Afghans, and so do the, uh, the countries in the region. Everybody, as it was said in the, the paper that we released, everybody involved in this needs to have some clarity and confidence in what the American role is going to be going forward over a, over a long term. Uh, and looking at this in one year or even six month increments doesn't provide that kind of clarity. So whatever else is, is going on in a very difficult situation, the, the President's decision provides clarity that there will be a long-term U.S. military presence uh, in Afghanistan. And that how long and at what level that presence um, endures will be up to the next President, which I think is the appropriate uh, place to be. So one would hope that with that now on the table, uh, there will be uh, an, an ability to begin to right this uncertain situation. And, and I certainly don't view it as putting a finger in the dike. I, I view this as shoring up an enterprise that's struggling but has, still has a chance to succeed and can succeed. And that it's in our interest to try to provide the space for the Afghans to be able to do that. It's up to them to do it. That's the other point in the paper. We provide the support they need to deliver. Um, and you know, we need to, that's, that's going to be something that, that will evolve over time. Uh, the, other, the other part of it, as I said before, is you know, we need to find a better regional op basis on which to pursue this. We, we, can't, we as a coalition, can't solve the conflict. Uh, anything that we're trying to do is much more difficult if the Taliban are operating out of Pakistan. Uh, so we, that's a rather pressing need that we need to identify. And we need to find a better way of containing the, um, the conflict within Pakistan as it morphs into Daesh and t uh, various Taliban factions that have been generated after the revelation that Mullah Omar, in fact, has been dead for two years. So. Um, uh, I think the president's decision shows, as he said, uh, that while our, the level of our engagement may change, our commitment won't change. And he's now taken a position that will allow that to be seen in, in very concrete terms. And I hope that will be an, an important factor going forward. Jim, if I could just add, mm -hmm. I think uh, we, we all seem to be focusing solely on the boots on the ground, the numbers. Um, so there are two other elements to it, too. One is to the extent to which uh, regional players, including Pakistan, can assist with the reconciliation to break apart the Taliban, because there are many regional uh, interests within Afghanistan of the field commanders and tribal leaders, et cetera. And many of them are tied to, to their, their commercial activities, including narcotics. So uh, I think that needs to be looked at. The other is the possibility of uh, bringing in air power again in support of the Afghan forces. So that if the, you know, that's the advantage that uh, the coalition does have. And they are within range. Or if they're not, then maybe other countries in the region can offer bases that would allow these operations to occur, very similar to what the Russians are doing in Syria. 
but I think if that, that threat is there, that sends a very different message to the Taliban that they can't um, try and get a temporary advantage and try and break the back of the Afghan national security forces. So I, I wish there was a little more discussion about that in Washington. Well, I think that will become that will come out as the as the second and third order consequences of the president's decision become apparent. The key thing about Bagram is that we're, is that's where we have air power yeah. um, in Afghanistan, and the intent <laughs> is to maintain that for, I hope, for the foreseeable future. Uh, but you're right; that's a, that's an important uh, an important consideration. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Miranda Collin. I'm at Aid Afghanistan for Education as well as American University. And I was hoping for some um, commentary on the Afghan opium industry, especially because Pakistan and Iran are some of the largest consumers of Afghan opium in the world. I was wondering um, what you think the role that the region can play in sort of combating that in whichever way is appropriate. One of you want to address that? Uh, I, I don't know about the details of, of, of the industry, but in the past there has been uh, uh, heroin and opium uh, interdiction has been at least something that uh, the region was more in agreement to have a conversation uh, about. And that can actually be a starting point of getting uh, uh, certain at least initial gains in terms of uh, uh, rules and, and, and coordination and, and the like uh, that, that would then translate into working on bigger issues. And I would um, say, I, yes. oh, please go ahead. I, I think I would challenge one of your assumptions, which is that Iran and Pakistan are the largest consumers of these products. They're way stations. Um, there is leakage in the process. Afghanistan and uh, Afghan opium has gone into Pakistan and has affected uh, drug use in Pakistan and in Iran. Uh, but the other part is through Central Asia. Um, and this is where I, what I was hinting at. I think the big magnet is not Iran or Pakistan or say even Central Asia, it's Europe and, and uh, the West. And so the question is, where is that money coming? You know, where, where is it coming from? And how is it getting back to the people that are producing the heroin That's right. and the opium? And I think that is the, the, the bits and pieces that need to be put together on the part of the United States and its allies, uh, with the Gulf states in particular, to make sure that um, you can interdict that flow of narco financing. Because sure enough, a large proportion of that ends up financing arms purchases. And there's a global bazaar for that. So. Uh, both of these are related. And it finances mansions in Dubai and a lot of other things. Uh, as of a couple of years ago, when I met with the, um, the British equivalent of our um, DEA, 80% of the heroin in the UK came from Afghanistan. And Shuja is right, the, the, mar the main market is, is both Russia and, and Europe. It's very few of it gets to the United States. But to go to the point of your question, this. This is a, a very potential, a potentially very fruitful area for a cooperation between countries in the region who should, again, be able to establish a superior interest that their societies, and I know the Iranians and the, and the Russians take this particularly seriously, 
that their societies are being undermined by the, by the drug flow. Uh, and as well, the Europeans have a huge stake uh, in it. So there, there ought to be a way, and, and we've, we've tried, but not very successfully so far, we've tried to generate a, a much more effective regional context for dealing with this. And again, I think that's a, f a fruitful area to pursue. Take somebody on this side, uh, all the way in the back there. Hi, uh, my name is Tawab Malikzad, and I'm with the Voice of America. Uh, thank you so much for the commentary today. Uh, I have uh, one question with two parts. Uh, the first part of it is the, uh, yesterday's President Obama's announcement came as the Taliban made an announcement of their own that they are ready for peace talk. However, they want the, uh, a complete withdrawal of United States troops from Afghanistan and a no intervention in by West ever in Afghanistan. Does that mean that the peace talks are dead and there is no hope for peace talks anymore? Because Taliban have shown time and again, it was mentioned in a comment that, the, that they controlled Ghazni, they, they went after Qandus, they have, cut, they have closed down the, uh, the, the highway between Kabul and Kandahar. They have shown that they are capable of uh, damaging the security forces in Afghanistan. The second part of my question, Sorry, my question is that uh, it was mentioned the regional coalition to be built to fight uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. How is that possible when, uh, as the Ambassador Cunningham mentioned, that, that you can bring them in one room but they cannot talk about the same topic? And how could you convince the Afghan people living in Afghanistan to trust Pakistan where there has been mistrust for over 60 years? Would that have a backlash for the Afghan government? Would more people join Taliban to fight the Afghan government who's cooperating with their quote-unquote enemy Pakistan? Thank you. Well, let me just comment before we go to your question that I wasn't talking about a regional coalition to fight the Taliban. I was talking about a regional coalition to help drive more, uh, to help provide more support for Afghanistan and to um, generate, pros generate progress towards uh, uh, better discussion of peace and cooperation in the region, including with Pakistan. So, um, why don't you? Uh, I would say to, to your first point, uh, you know, the, the demanding complete uh, uh, American withdrawal from Af Afghanistan is a sort of a standard item on, on the Taliban's uh, wish list. Uh, and and you, you could hardly have expected that they would say anything other than what they did uh, uh, if uh, after American announcement that, that they're staying. Actually, the best way to get the United States to leave Afghanistan is to have successful reconciliation talks. I mean, you could say if you were, you, the Afghanistan surge has actually now prolonged American stay. So it's, it's, if it, this is a strategy that actually has having the reverse effect. Secondly, you know, the decision to talk or to fight, it's not a sort of an abstract philosophical decision. It's about uh, uh, whether or not the Taliban see a, a, a straight path to victory or uh, that they see that you know, they're not going to arrive in Kabul anytime soon, and therefore there might be advantages to, to talking. I think now also the element of having ISIS on the, on the horizon is also playing psychologically on their minds as well. I mean, I, I think even if they talk, you're going to see a much more hardened public re uh, rhetoric from them because they, they, they don't want to lose the sort of the high ground that they have occupied to another force over which they don't have control. I, I, I think, uh, yes, the question of trust is quite important, um, but it's actually 
perhaps important more politically uh, uh, for President Ghani because of uh, the, the, the strategy that he had he followed of, of uh, expecting that a better relations between Islamabad and Kabul would translate into a better security situation in Afghanistan. And uh, uh, you know, it's going to take a, a rebuilding, if you would, of that trust. I don't think that's an, uh, that, that essentially is a driver for people joining the Taliban uh, to fight against uh, the Afghan government. That I think is more about, uh, at this stage, is about uh, you know, generally the strategy of maintaining security in Afghanistan, whether a policy of close collaboration with Pakistan is likely to improve that, and what's the political cost of doing that. I think we should give kudos to President Ghani for actually risking such a strategy. He was very bold when he did it. Um, uh, and, and obviously, it hasn't given dividend, political dividend for him the way he expected it. But I think he took a very bold, bold, bold move. And, and as uh, Shoja said, he should be commended and supported. But I really think now the ball is in Pakistan's court on that issue, that, that they, have to, they have to give the Afghan government something solid, something meaningful, uh, in order to uh, convince uh, the Afghan public that, 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 the, that the risk that Afghanistan took was actually the right one. If not, as I said, the Afghan government is not going to continue down that path. Shuja, do you have anything you want to add? I think I would just add that Pakistan needs to very seriously look at the possibility that uh, uh, what happens when President Ghani is not there. I mean, he's a partner who's been willing to work with Pakistan, who's willing to trust Pakistan to do the right thing. Uh, what if he is replaced because his people are unhappy with the results that he produced? Um, where is that person going to emerge from? And what does that do to Pakistan? Because Pakistan has now faced a situation of reverse sanctuary for its Taliban. And uh, with, with the end of the CSF, among other things, Pakistan is going to have to fight that war on its own for many years to come unless it can work with Afghanistan to quell that border region and to resolve the issues that exist between the two countries. I think that's a very important point about, you, what, about President Ghani and this government. Um, it's hard to see that if this effort fails, and I, I hope it will be resumed, although it will be difficult given the, the dynamics of the past couple months, but if this ever effort fails, um, it's going to be very hard for a future, Pakistan, uh, future Afghan government or political leader to get him or herself uh, back around into a position where uh, they're willing to try to undertake this again, at least for some time. And that would be that would be very unfortunate uh, if that were to happen. And let me also say a point that you made about the reverse sanctuary. Uh, yes, there are one of the effects of the of the uh, military campaign in Waziristan was to force a lot of people across the border into Afghanistan, um, which has created significant problems for the Afghan government as well. But to the extent there are reverse sanctuaries now, they have been for some time in Afghanistan, and that's one of the arguments that we've been making uh, for some time is that the the phenomenon of violent terror has moved back and forth across the border, but it's in both places and it needs to be addressed both places. But where it is in Afghanistan is extremely difficult to address and um, very hard even for our forces, let alone the Afghan forces, to, 
to uh, find people who are there and to deal with it. So there's a, there's a, an unequal factor here. It's not as if the Afghans can simply say, "Okay, we're going to take care of this problem." Actually, it would have been it would have been uh, better uh, if this had happened several years ago when we had a much larger military presence there and could have played a more effective role, which we would have played had the opportunity afforded itself. Um, some, there's a gentleman in the back, all the way in the back, who's had his hand up uh, repeatedly. I'm Sebratullah from Georgetown University. Thank you very much for the nice commentary. Uh, first, I want to bring uh, attention of all the audience. In the last 13 years, Afghanistan has lost 150,000 people uh, in this war against insurgency. So that's one fact. Uh, second question is that uh, the China-Pakistan economic corridor in the process of being built, and a lot of good progress made in Afghanistan against corruption, and I'm very hopeful that this will continue. So what are the chances that the economical support of the Afghan government on development side will go back to the level that it was a few years ago? And I think beside military support, this is very needed. Thank you. Um, I think the, uh, I'm not up to date on the current figures, but um, at least as far as the United States is concerned, our, uh, while our development assistance has been reduced, it's still the largest assistance program in the world. And uh, there's still a considerable amount of money in, in the pipeline, as we say, to support projects in Afghanistan. So there, however this evolves over the next couple of years, there's still going to be a very significant assistance effort, not just from the United States, but from our international partners as well. Um, there was, in the beginning of September, there was an important meeting in Kabul, which is also a good thing, of the international community to review um, the, the multilateral framework uh, for, de for development assistance to Afghanistan, which I'm told went very well. Uh, the Afghan government updated uh, in a very well-prepared fashion its program going forward and its, uh, its um, metrics for ju judging success uh, and in a number of fields that we've been discussing with them for some time. So um, we will certainly encourage that. I mean, the United States government will certainly encourage that process with a view towards a meeting at the end of 2016, I think, to take stock of, of where things stand. Um, yes, sir. Right. Back, back there. Gentleman. Oh. Gentleman in the, the tie and the... Thank you. Uh, I'm Arif Ansar from Polytech. My question is, how do we understand the, what's unfolding in the Middle East, the Syria? Uh, we were talking, obviously, in the context of what's happening in Afghanistan, Pakistan. Do have the, the politics of Middle East have any bearing on this region? In the sense of what we're seeing is that in, in, in Syria, it seems like, or in Middle East, everybody's going after their enemy, and they're also fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, is, is Iraq, uh, is Afghanistan becoming more like Syria or Iraq, or there's no connection? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that everybody is fighting ISIS uh, <laughs> in, the, in the region. Some, some, some are. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think the first uh, uh, parallel is obviously the, the, the general uh, American strategy. Uh, I think, I think 
you know, Iraq uh, uh, and Afghanistan, uh, basically, at different points. Uh, first, we, you know, counterinsurgency strategy succeeded in I Iraq, then it was imported to Afghanistan, then essentially both of them became part of the withdrawal uh, uh, strategy of the United States. So I think it's important to look at what's happened in the Middle East and keep that in mind when we talk about American, level of American engagement going forward, whether it's at 10,000 or potentially might have to be more uh, down the road. Uh, so I think that's one key issue. The other is that the, 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 for, the way the forces are arrayed in the, in the Middle East, uh, uh, particularly between Iran and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries, these are also players in Afghanistan and Pakistan with this, also the same sectarian forces present. And this fight has once happened there before in the 1980s and 90s. And, uh, and, and, and so in some ways, um, there is a connectivity, if you would, ideological connectivity, the sympathies for different uh, parts of the uh, fight in, in the Middle East that ultimately could uh, uh, become a factor in, in, Af in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. I mean, sectarianism has been simmering below the surface, but it could become a much more uh, open breach in, in, in both of these countries. And uh, also, as I said, the ISIS factor is, is very important. Uh, you know, uh, if it actually becomes a much more of a factor in the insurgency, it will, uh, it will connect uh, you know, the Middle East and, and, uh, and uh, South Asia, not just with facts on the ground, but also, I think, in the, in the, in the uh, political imagination of Europeans and Americans and, and, and the Chinese, because you know, that, that, then, you know, we already are dealing with a region-wide phenomenon in, in, in the Middle East, and then the potential for ISIS to expand, one is into sub-Saharan Africa, into Nigeria and, and, and uh, Somalia and, and the like. The other is actually into, into South Asia. And, uh, and that obviously uh, connects these together. We don't have right now, if you were to say, a single strategy that, that you know, fits both uh, uh, Middle East and, and South Asia. But I think ISIS will be something that might push us to have a more coherent a look at these two regions in a, in a sort of a singular way. I'd just like to add a word on Pakistan because uh, what makes Pakistan different from the other countries in the Middle East is that it does have a very powerful and cohesive military. And the military does worry about the penetration of sectarianism as well as Salafist influence into the military. Uh, and that's something that is increasingly being discussed publicly. Uh, in, in different fora in Pakistan. Um, but we have not seen this kind of sectarianism uh, come to the fore, uh, particularly in the operations of the military. There have been no uh, groups that have said they won't fight this group or that group. And as, as Wali, you mentioned, uh, the move against the Lashkar-e-Jhangvi was applauded widely throughout the country because that's an extremist Sunni group that was being used to target the Shia groups in central and southern Punjab, as well as the Hazara in Baluchistan. And was, it was widely believed that at, at times they were also being used against the Baluch nationalists by the so-called establishment, which is a code a, a euphemism for, for the military in the past. And so um, the military will be able to 
tackle this problem when it emerges in Pakistan. ISIS has been somewhat isolated uh, in its occurrences inside Pakistan, and I don't think it has as yet taken on the regular forces of uh, insurgency within Pakistan. Okay, we have uh, hard deadlines here, so we have time for one or at most two more questions. Uh, sir? Akbar Khwaja, former World Bank official. Uh, thank you to the panel. Uh, Richard Olson, U.S. Ambassador to Pakistan, have been involved in Qatar and Islamabad talks with the Taliban, and now he has been appointed as a new envoy for Pakistan and Afghanistan. Do you hope that there will be, again, Taliban on the table soon? And President Obama also, a couple of days ago, I think he stressed on the peace talks. So how soon do you expect these talks to resume? Thank you. Well, um, uh, you know, I, I think the peace talks will have their own, uh, uh, you know, cycle coming and going, and we've seen this in many other conflicts in Northern Ireland, in uh, other conflicts. I think what, what is critical is not whether they meet or, or, or just talk about talking, but whether the dynamics on the ground actually make a difference in when they meet, and, uh, and um, uh, that there's significant interest on both sides to make uh, to make a reconciliation process stick and, and move forward. So I think the open question is whether the, the Taliban, it is the right time for them to, to have these talks. Uh, there is a political cost to showing up, and then there's a political cost to actually agreeing to compromises. So I, I think they, they, they were at the level they, they could assume the political cost of actually coming to Qatar and meeting, but actually but making substantive concessions uh, uh, accepting the Afghan constitution, accepting a ceasefire, accepting, uh, you know, varieties of restrictions. I don't think uh, necessarily um, that uh, they're there. And I think, you know, the, so you, I, and I, there's going to be a period that you have to digest the meaning of Kunduz and the meaning of the American decision. And, and, and also, I think um, there's turbulence in the ranks uh, with only recent announcement of uh, Mullah passing. There's still a consolidation of leadership that has to uh, take place. Um, so uh, I think, you know, we, we should be optimistic about the talks, but we should not expect, you know, a, a peace festival anytime uh, soon necessarily. Yeah, anything you want to add? Um, just on Kunduz, and I think there was an earlier question from the person from VOA that said that Ghazni had been occupied. I don't think Ghazni has been occupied, so let's correct uh, the record on that. Uh, I, think, I think Kunduz in some ways showed the weakness of the Taliban. Um, they may be able to penetrate cities which they've surrounded in the past, but whether they'll be able to hold, I think that may shift the the sentiment within Afghanistan in support of the government and its forces. And as time goes on, the NSF is only going to become stronger and more battle-hardened. And I think the attrition rate will probably start falling off as time goes by, as the force uh, sort of coalesces. So uh, in fact, now I would say the time is really on the side of the authorities, not, not on the Taliban. So I would put a little more optimistic spin on that. I'd also note that the, um, the, the Taliban, when 
when they um, entered uh, Kunduz, um, uh, issued a statement about all the good things that they were going to do and how well they were going to treat the citizenry and people shouldn't be afraid and all that kind of stuff. But in reality, they, they, they behaved quite barbarously, including uh, hunting down uh, women who were trying to hunt down women who were running shelters for abandoned women and orphans and things like that, uh, summarily executing government officials and, and a number of other pretty bad things, uh, which shows two things. They, they can't really control their, the agenda of their fighters, even if they meant it in the, in the beginning. And it also gives a glimpse into what Afghanistan looks like if the Taliban do come back to power. Um, one, take one more. Ambassador. Oh, I should thank you, Ambassador Mohib, uh, the new ambassador from Afghanistan. So welcome. Um, there were a number of questions and concerns that were raised. I wanted to um, point them out, but first to welcome the paper that you released, uh, which um, it was coincided with the um, video conference between the two presidents, so at exactly the same time, very welcome and great timing for it. It also shows the number of friends Afghanistan has in the United States. Um, and that's good news for us, um, with so many people endorsing that paper. Um, uh, we also welcome the, the troops level until the 2016 day, the announcement by President Obama. Um, but <clears throat> coming to the, a more related topic um, on, on Pakistan, I think, like rightfully um, mentioned, President Ghani put a lot of his political capital into Pakistan, into mending the relationship with Pakistan. Um, we also understand that Pakistan is going through a very rough time it, itself, with so many internally displaced people of its own, not just having to worry about Afghan refugees. Um, economic st stability in Pakistan, uh, the northwest frontier province, which Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa now has pretty much stalled um, economic uh, progress. Uh, Quetta, another large city uh, on the border with us, is um, totally circled. The city, the, in, the city center, is not accessible to the general public. Extremism has reached all the way into Punjab and Lahore. Um, Karachi has always been unsafe, and and, there's, and so the, all the difficulties that they've been facing with the reach out from the Afghan government was to create, to mend that relationship, and uh, we hope that, that that's a decision that the government will eventually take. Um, and, and to point out that the, the internal dynamics between Pakistan and India, the month um, that we have a seven and a half tons bomb explode in Kabul city, uh, India, um, inaugurates one of the largest dams they built in Herat. So the public perception um, goes towards, of course, the hearts and minds towards India, and that public perception in Afghanistan is changing. So there is a small time frame, a window of opportunity for Pakistan to, exp uh, to ex extend, and um, the olive branch that the President Obama, I'm sorry, President Ghani has reached out to um, if not, once the perception in the public becomes difficult, it doesn't matter what the government then wants. We will not be able to do much with it. Um, I also wanted to address the, um, the, uh, the drugs issue that was raised earlier. Um, 
President Ghani recently endorsed the National Action Plan uh, for Drugs. And some good news on that front, we, we've, we're expecting a 40% reduction uh, on cultivation this year. Uh, that's something we're addressing now. That partly is because of bad weather, but I think it's good in the good direction. Yeah, <laughs> take it where you can get it. <clears throat> Um, uh, President Ghani made his um, speech today um, from Kunduz, which was uh, a sign this was to welcome President Obama's announcement, uh, but also a, a sign to show the, that, that any kind of insurgency will not be able to take any of major cities from us. But also to highlight the progress made in Afghanistan um, with the accusation or, or the assumption that uh, Mullah Fazullah was treated in a hospital in Afghanistan which is obviously baseless, uh, but highlights um, the progress Afghanistan has made where that accusation now comes in that our hospitals can treat. <laughs> 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 and don't just kill people. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, but once again, thank you very much for a very insightful discussion here. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. All right, you have the last word. Uh, we're three minutes over, so thank you. Thank you to our thank guests you, for Jim. coming. Thank you. And thanks to all of you. Thank you, Thank you.